0: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast
1: series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Inflation Nation, the cost of living hits a 22-year high as energy costs spike and food prices soar. The political temperature also rises.
2: Home heating oil has gone up by a staggering 127%.
1: Meanwhile, there's political controversy over the chief medical officer Tony Houlihan's new job in the academic world.
2: I think we'll all acknowledge uh, that it would have been far preferable if the full details around this comment had been put in the public domain at the
1: outset. Out in the cold, two Irish diplomats in Moscow have been expelled from Russia tonight. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions for us on the hashtag TonightVMTV. First, the war in Europe, and Russia has expelled two Irish diplomats from Moscow tonight in a move described by authorities here as unjustified. Earlier, the United Nations voted to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council over apparent war crimes in Ukraine. The vote at the United Nations comes as Ukraine's foreign minister warned NATO members today that a battle for Donbass will remind Europe of the Second World War. The Western allies have promised more military support for Ukraine, but Kyiv wants more help ahead of heavy fighting in the east of the country.
3: The battle for Donbas will remind you was Second World War, with large operations, maneuvers, involvement of thousands of tanks, armored vehicles, planes, artillery. Either you help us now, And I'm speaking about days, not weeks. Or your help will come too late.
1: Well, let's join EU correspondent Rosie Burchard, who's live for us in Brussels uh, tonight on the very latest from that NATO meeting. What more do we know about the NATO response uh, to Ukraine's call for more military aid? Rosie?
4: Well, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, was a special guest at that NATO meeting today, and I was there as he arrived to talks. He made his wish list for NATO allies crystal clear. He said he had three items on his agenda and three only, weapons, weapons and weapons. Now, those calls appear not to have gone unanswered, at least to some extent. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says more arms are on the way to Ukraine. However, NATO allies very tight-lipped on which kind of weapons, how they are being delivered, and most importantly, when we heard from Dmytro Kuleba, the Ukrainian foreign minister, that it's not only about getting the weapons, it's about when they are received. He says time is something that his, that his country simply does not have at the moment. So give
1: us an indication then about the Ukrainian reaction, I suppose, to what NATO is offering. We don't have much detail yet, um, but do you think they're going to be happy that it's a significant amount? They are, of course, looking for that big increase in aid and military support.
4: Well, NATO allies individually provide Ukraine with those arms and those weapons. And uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister said he was grateful for this, but he really wants to see an acceleration. And he uh, also expressed criticism towards NATO. He was very critical also when it comes to the Western response more broadly toward Russia, particularly when it comes to that really thorny topic of sanctions. He said it simply should not take atrocities such as those reported in Bucha for Western leaders to tighten those sanctions and to come forward with new sanction proposals. And we do know that just behind me, European Union countries have been discussing fresh sanctions which appear to not go far enough for what Ukraine is being asked is has been asking for
1: okay Rosie Burchard uh, joining us from Brussels tonight thank you for the update from there well I'm joined here by Fine TD Emer Higgins people before profit TD Paul Murphy Independent Senator and Security Analyst Tom Clonan and Business Post Editor Richie Oakley. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, I want to start, I suppose, with the expulsion of the Irish diplomats from Moscow. The news um, um, that we're hearing there, um, we're hearing Simon Coveney saying this is completely unjustified. It is in retaliation um, for the departure of four embassy staff um, from the Russian embassy. Is it altogether surprising that this has happened, Richie?
5: I suppose it's not surprising when you consider uh, the way russia operates and um, it's utterly ridiculous i mean there's no question of irish diplomats being involved in any activity that would raise concerns um i think we have a small number of diplomats in russia uh, the problem in ireland was there was a high number of russian diplomats here an excessively high number um according to some of the security experts who looked at it here and they, they believed that some of them were up to activities that they shouldn't have involved in, so they were sent back um, back to a country that we know has lied on the international stage for the last few months. A country that's involved in a brutal invasion uh, in Ukraine and the sending home of Irish diplomats. I mean, it's a tiny gesture. Um, it is unjustified and, look, it looks desperate, it looks ridiculous.
1: Mm, how significant do you think this move is um, from from Russia? We know the Russian ambassador called in, the Irish ambassador to Russia and said, look, we're not happy um, at what happened last week and the decision that was made by the government. Now, it was a decision that was made in other European countries as well. Uh, they called it the, uh, completely unfounded and now they've taken their own action.
6: Yeah, well, I suppose we, we were absolutely expecting some level of retaliation i mean that's that's the obvious thing to do um, and they're now expelling about a third of our diplomatic corps in Russia. But I suppose what's really very different is the fact that we expelled um, Russians operating from the embassy here in Russia on the basis of security briefings, on the basis of information and intel we had. There's no such allegations made against our diplomats in Russia. And, and for that reason, I mean, it is outrageous behavior by Russia. But as I said, you know, we're in a war situation. Of course, we're going to be expecting some level of retaliation. And now the options, I suppose, for us as a country are whether to withdraw um, our full diplomatic corps from from Russia and leave our Russian citizens without any support there, um, or, or whether to whether to 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 take further action here on 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 Irish soil in terms of the Russian embassy.
1: Yeah, but tell wh- us about that because I mean, one of the reasons that you've said that the Russian ambassador needs to stay in situ here is because of the knock on effects removing him would have for our diplomatic staff over, over in Moscow. That's already happening.
6: Yeah, so as I said, a third of our diplomatic staff have, have now been effectively expelled. And um, we do still have two thirds operating there and supporting our Russian our Russian citizens there. So I think that's something worth considering. And um, but ultimately, these decisions aren't going to be made on the airwaves. Like these decisions are going to be made in the context of security briefings, on the context of intel that's been harvested both here and both abroad. And what I'd love to see is decisions being made on a pan-European basis. Um, where if, for example, we were to go down the route of expelling the Russian ambassador, I think it would make a much, much stronger signal if the EU united, get, united behind that cause and every EU country took that decision. But so I,
1: you don't believe there should be any action unless um, everyone else in Europe does the same? No,
6: that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it would be stronger action if everybody took it together. And I'm also saying that the decisions won't be made in the airwaves. They're going to be made in the context of security briefings because, as we've seen, every decision has retaliation.
1: Yeah, um, what do you think, um, Paul Murphy, at this, uh, at this juncture now when we've seen um, diplomats um, being removed um, from their their posts in Moscow about uh, the Russian ambassador remaining on in his role here?
2: Well, I think what we should be focusing on, to be honest, is what the Irish government can do more to assist people in Ukraine. I'm not convinced that expelling the Russian ambassador will have a positive impact. Uh, impact i don't obviously cry any tears for the russian ambassador i don't care if he's kicked out but i'm not sure that it will contribute to assisting ukrainian people and um, the things i think we should be doing is we should be increasing humanitarian aid for ukraine- ukrainian people and um, we should be calling clearly on the international stage as has been called for by ukrainians the trade union movement for the cancellation of ukrainian debt so this year ukraine has to pay over seven billion in repayments it is choking the economy. It is hampering the war effort and it will hamper the rebuilding. Unfortunately I got an answer today from the Minister for Foreign Affairs saying no we we couldn't do that because it would undermine the IMF, which holds quite a large part of the of the debt and I suppose, you know, imposed austerity on, on Ukraine. Um, and the other thing I think we should be doing is we should shut down the shadow banking system in this country, which operates through the IFSC and which Russian oligarchs, as well as other oligarchs, um, take advantage of to send money back home um, and which ends up fueling wars around the world.
1: Um, With all that in mind and and standing in solidarity with the people of Ukraine, and I'm sure a lot of people in Ukraine would welcome that, that you'd like to see um, all their jets uh, written off. I think that probably would be a great help in in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, can you see why people thought that, you know, people for profit TDs did? stand up after the speech by Vladimir Zelensky that by by not clapping and not applauding there that was a political stunt
2: no um, we didn't put out any press statement saying we didn't applaud or anything like that. It was sections of the media that chose to like, freeze frame the video. These people aren't clapping. Zoom in on them. and do their and, job, and, the and, sections and, of the media so, no, do it's, their it's job. No, it's no problem. But well, that's point, our job, but it's, not a, but it's not a stunt. It's our job to
5: analyse but, what happens yeah, yeah,
2: in the yeah, doll. But, you know? but, but the point is it's not a stunt. It would be disingenuous for us in a parliament <clears> to applaud the main call that we don't agree with. Why would we do that? You know, when Richard White Barrett spoke the government TDs mostly didn't applaud, they didn't agree with, that's, that's fine, that's no problem. And the, the main point that President Zelensky was calling for, obviously we're 100% with him when he's describing the horror of the invasion, the war crimes being committed and so on, but the main thing that he was calling for was an escalation of the EU sanctions. And those sanctions are indiscriminate sanctions they're not at all targeted sanctions they are like known technically as dumb sanctions rather than smart sanctions they're the kind of well, sanctions no, which it. are responsible for the deaths of half a million people in Iraq in the run-up to yeah. the Gulf War obviously they went on over a period of time so we think they're hurting uh, ordinary people and we think we're, they're but, undermining the yes. anti-war movement in Russia because actually Putin is able to use them to say look these are fifth columnists, this is, all, all right. the West is I united to, against us. And unfortunately, his opinion poll rating has gone up since the oh, sanctions have been imposed. I polls. want
1: to bring uh, uh, you in here on this, Tom Clowney, like when you hear this, it is being used um, by Europe, I suppose, as a weapon, a non-military weapon, these sanctions in order to kind of squeeze Putin and, and to reduce his power in funding the war. Do you think they're having the impact we want them to have?
7: Oh, well, for sure, it's a blunt instrument. But I don't think there's enough. I mean, there has to be a ban on imports of Russian oil and fossil fuels. I mean, I was there yesterday um, for President uh, Zelensky's address and what I saw on the screen was a man uh, who was on the edge. It it wasn't a pretty speech. It wasn't grandstanding. He he was basically asking for help. And, you know, what's going to happen in, in the coming days and weeks is going to be an absolute onslaught on the Donbas region, it's going to consist of a new term now, urbanicide, where you completely destroy cities um, densely populated by civilians, you you prevent them from leaving. It's political cleansing, you know, the the Roskvardia units that come in behind the troops and they have lists of people Um, and this is, as as one of your previous contributors said, is is going to be like something that we saw in the Second World War. Mm Uh, we don't have a lot of time to finesse our response, um, and and so you know I I, th- I think this is it, this is a moment for Europe. I think we're going to see a conflict uh, similar to the not seen uh, since World War Two, and you know we're fighting this fight, if you like, or this war will be about the values, our collective values as a European Union, and our value consensus. Are we prepared to stand together? Now I do agree that. Uh, you know, there's a tradition with embassies and diplomatic staff that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, even to the most bitter conflicts. And even in those most bitter conflicts, you had uh, embassies and diplomatic staffs and legations all around the world that saved tens of thousands of lives. So however odious Uh, the the ambassador is, I do think it's important that we keep the the lines of communication open. Now, on the the subject of sanctions and what Ireland can do, you know, uh, there were suggestions that we we should send weapons, but but that's not the business Ireland is in. We have other very strong... We should be sending pharmaceutical products, blood plasma, uh, water purification kits, IT, all of the things that will help and support the people and save lives. You know, there are countries all around Ukraine that manufacture weapons. Let them do that if if they so wish. But we really need to stand with Ukraine in the coming days because this is a conflict that will have echoes throughout the whole of Europe and throughout the European Union.
1: And When we hear what um, Tom is saying, Richie, just about this all being concentrated now in the east of the country and that move towards that and a dangerous stalemate that's likely to happen and a very bloody one at that, we are likely to see the humanitarian crisis growing. We're already hearing about the numbers um, who've already arrived into the country, some 20,000 refugees and the pressures that's putting on our ability to respond. Um, what, What do you make of this, what we're hearing, that warehouses now could be to house people who are fleeing the war situation because we simply don't have the resources, we don't have the accommodation in place?
5: Um, well, well, firstly, I'd say, I mean, obviously, the people in Ukraine, um, they've been invaded by Russia. It's brutal. Um, and, you know, they've had to flee. A lot of the men have stayed there to fight. And we've had a lot of women and children. I think 600 a day is the number at the moment coming in. Um, we have a moral imperative to care for these people, to provide them with shelter. Um, until such times they're able to return or until such times, you know, if if they end up staying here, depending on how long the uh, invasion goes on, how long the war goes on. um, It's going to put huge pressure on the state. We already had a housing crisis. We already had a process of trying to house um, asylum seekers. Um, We already have a rental crisis. Um, So there is lots of difficulties. Um, And I know they're looking at various different ways. Hotels aren't places where you can keep people long-term warehouses with tents inside in them, you know, to create rooms for people. Again, that's not long-term. So there's huge pressure. um, And I think there's been a a good response from people in terms of providing rooms in their homes. Mm. Um, Maybe a more formal system might need to be put in place there at some stage. The UK have done that. Um, when
1: you say formal system this the idea of, of of paying families to take in to take in you refugees know, to,
5: you know if you take, just to cover the costs just to cover the costs yeah. of taking someone in because we are already it, hear- it
1: we are already hearing um from reception centers that have sent families um to irish homes that some people are coming back because families say we can't we can't cope um, we you know we weren't really equipped we didn't know about how to handle this we don't know what we're doing and then we're also hearing now of warehouses potentially being used is this adequate accommodation for people who are fleeing war
6: of course it's not adequate accommodation but but it's safe place you know that's ultimately what ukrainians who are fleeing a war-torn country need and require and that's our moral moral obligation not long term though correct, absolutely. And and it's going to be a massive challenge for us as a country. I mean, there's no denying that. Um, we've already seen the, the huge um, level of outpouring we've had from, from our own citizens in terms of offering holiday homes, offering um, places in their own home. And as you say, there, there is a cost to that. And, you know, it, when you when you volunteer for that, you're not necessarily thinking or assuming this could be six months or, or, or eight months' Do you time. Do think it so- does
1: need to be more formalised? Uh, that point that's being made, that saying the UK where they're doing it there is a small payment to cover you know basic costs for um, a household taking in another family taking in people especially in these straitened times for a lot of families
6: yes yeah, so I suppose we've taken a different approach to the EU and that we're, we're actually um, providing social welfare to the Ukrainian refugees who arrive here rather than providing it to the households taking care of them but I don't think it's something we should be ruling out like people are struggling and people want to do the right thing and accommodate refugees where they have that where, where they have the space to be able to do so and whatever we need to do to enable that to happen, we have to. You'd
1: agree with that, with, with that approach, Paul, in doing all we can in, in this situation, no matter how challenging?
2: I, I would. Um, and that shouldn't include people living in warehouses. So we have to do everything we can to ensure that people have better, more appropriate accommodation That's than, than, than being in, in, in warehouses. I, I also would say, I mean, I, I agree completely with Richie, that we have a moral imperative to do everything we can to help these people. Uh, I would also say that goes for Ukrainians. Because for all the refugees in this country who are fleeing war, we shouldn't have this two-track system being set up, whereby Ukrainians correctly, 100% are being said, you can work, here's a PPS number, we've got a reception, but yet we still have people living in direct provision. No way, this has to be the moment to end direct provision, but also let's deal with the housing crisis, let's use the vacant homes that exist to, to mean that everybody can have a decent standard of living in this country.
1: All right. Okay. Well, uh, moving now to a video that was first verified by The New York Times. It's emerged to appear to show the execution of a Russian prisoner of war by Ukrainian forces. A lot of coverage of apparent war crimes in this conflict um, have come from modern data, drone and satellite technology. And a short time ago, I spoke to New York Times Visual Investigations producer Maliki Brown about his investigative work uncovering Russian atrocities in Bucha in Ukraine.
3: Yeah, thanks, Claire. Um, Well, everybody saw the um, horrific images that came out of Bucha um, of dead bodies across the streets um, and in basements and and elsewhere after the Russian military withdrew. Um, What we did was mapped out where those um, bodies were found. um, And we wanted to find out where they were, uh, what activity there was in the area um, when they first appeared there. And of course, the Russians, when they um, issued the denial of responsibility, were very specific, as they often are. They provide details. They said we were out of there by March 30th. Those bodies were recently placed there, and um, we weren't in we weren't in Bucha when it, when this happened. And um, we have access to satellite imagery platforms here, and uh, knowing the locations, we could see what the satellite pictures were picking up um, uh, day by day. And around March 9th, 10th. He started to see those bodies on the streets um, and we contacted the satellite in- uh, company and they provided these higher definition images from a, a week later and the bodies are in- still in the same position and remained there uh, until um, last weekend when uh, people finally came out of basements and uh, officials went in, authorities went in.
1: And tell us, Maliki, um, from your investigative work, indeed, the the investigative work of The New York Times in Syria, we have seen similar um, denials when civilian areas have been targeted, specifically Syrian hospitals.
3: Yes, that's right. An investigation we did a couple of years ago um, showed that Russian pilots were bombing hospitals in in Syria. Um, We had uh, cockpit recordings of the pilots over several months, and Syrian pilots uh, which we translated, and very often they shared the coordinates. Um, but we were able to to match, you know, the time and location in which the pilots were flying with attacks on, on medical facilities across Idlib, um, a province in northwest Syria that was coming under attack. Um, and of course, you know, the, the Russian mode is to deny—militaries of every country very often de- deny—but the Russians um, you know they, they they flatly deny it, and they'll uh, but without any facts or evidence to support that, um, and they kind of make ludicrous claims that are fairly easy to rebut, um, uh, and it, it comes very quickly. Uh, often, you know, they they don't investigate these uh, incidents. Um, uh, you know, in in Syria, actually, they also bombed a, a camp for displaced people with no military target nearby. It's some of the most horrific stuff. Um, that I've seen, um, you know, children decapitated by the, the, the effects of the, of the, the, the bombs there. Um, and it's, it's just really awful. Like, a, you know, the Russian campaign in Syria, and it appears now in Ukraine, is eroding these red lines of conflict that have existed for decades um, and seem to be able to do it without uh, any accountability.
1: Um, How big a challenge, Maliki, do you think we face in this time of of misinformation? We get a glut of information on social media and videos like we've never seen before in a conflict situation in this particular um, war in Ukraine. How challenging is it for investigative teams like yourselves to discern the fact from the fiction and, and get to what's actually happening on the ground?
3: Yeah, it's it's never one source. Claire. you know, you're you're relying on you know, our teams on the ground there, um, in addition to witnesses across Ukraine in this instance who are documenting what they're seeing, um, and you know there is. You know, there's there's satellite imagery, we've got weapons experts, there's other analysis that you can do. And, you know, what you're doing is answering basic journalistic questions with this new source of information and combining that with traditional reporting to get a a deeper and richer picture of what's happening on the ground. Uh, And what we're finding from Bucha is that the testimony uh, that we're hearing from uh, witnesses and and survivors of of what happened there is— correlating with the evidence that is, is being found. Now, investigations are at an early stage, but, for instance, our team was in there today um, along one of the sites where there we know that Russians have um, killed people. Uh, we've got evidence of that. And they told us, uh, a woman and her father, that the soldiers came to their house, um, interrogated her and her husband, executed her husband, and told them that they should flee. Um, and they went to the other side of town and, and remained there for three weeks. And we're hearing stories like when they came back on March, on April 1st as well, they found a second body in their, in their front garden. Um, and we're hearing stories like that from across Bucha now that we're able to interview witnesses.
1: Maliki, thank you for joining us tonight and sharing with us the very important work um, that you're doing right now. New York Times Visual Investigations producer Maliki Brown, thank you. Thanks. And just some breaking news reaching us tonight on a separate story. At least two people have been killed and several wounded in a gun attack in the Israeli city of Tel Aviv tonight. It's the latest in a series of such attacks there. In recent weeks, the shooting took place in a busy area known for its uh, bars and restaurants. My panel is staying with me. Coming up next, the big squeeze on incomes and that political row over Dr Tony Houlihan's new role. Stay with us. The cost of living is at its highest in more than 20 years. New figures from the Consumer Price Index show prices increased by 6.7% in the last year and the rate of inflation in one month alone is at its highest, almost 2%, since 1997. The biggest increases came in the areas of transport, housing, water, electricity, gas and other fuels.
2: But still your government is ruling out reducing VAT to zero in energy bills even if the Commission give you the flexibility to do so. We already have a discretionary VAT rate in Ireland that has the lowest VAT rate on energy, or one of the lowest VAT rates on energy in Europe. And at the moment, if we were to do what you propose, it would not be possible. It's not lawful, not legal. Um, And if we were to reduce that uh, to 12%, we could reduce it to 12%, we would then have to go back up to 23%.
1: My panel is still here with me, TD's Emer Higgins, Paul Murphy, Senator Tom Clonan and Business Post editor Richie Oakley. And When we look at those inflation figures that are out today, it will come as a surprise to not many people, but we know as well that the impact of the war hasn't hit in yet, has it, Richie?
5: Um, Well, it's starting to be felt in in terms of energy uh, prices and the the knock-on impact um, that's having uh, in terms of... Um, commodities for building and, and various different supplies. I think we're going to start seeing it in food now and in other products and fr- from the business post talking to retailers and other businesses, they're getting to the point where they're saying they're going to have to pass on these costs. Um, we've seen the construction industry coming back to the government saying we have all these pro- projects that we tendered for that were, that are underway, we can't afford to complete these, they're no longer feasible. We're seeing that in the private sector where, you know where they're trying to build houses and things like that, where they're struggling... On, on projects, so I hate using the phrase "perfect storm," but I mean that's that's where it is. And they're saying the predictions are that we won't have a strong growth. We'll still we'll still be okay in terms of money coming in for the government, um, but the demands on on spending that are going to be increasing all the time. And the pressure, the opposition will have you believe the government can do everything to sort this problem, um, but I'm not sure you can from within Ireland when you've got global, massive global issues pressing on it. Um, whatever measures have been done so far, they've been, you've got the excise cut on fuel and then you have the, 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 the um, money given to people for, for, off their bills, but that was given to everyone. Um, and for some people, that's, you know, that money is the difference of being able to turn on the, the, the heating. And for other people, that would maybe give you an excuse to leave the heating on for the entire day, um, because not everyone needed that money. So I think the government are saying they're gonna to have to act again, but if they do have to act again, the key thing is that the measures are targeted and that they're temporary. Yeah. Um, and that they make sense, that, they, they, that they, they serve the purpose that they need to.
1: Yeah, and we, we hear people, Emer, coming back to that 200 euro energy credit and while it will be welcomed by some who would say, in fact, you know what, I need an awful lot more than that because that's not enough to get me through. For other people, it won't really make a dent. Like we had Leo Bradgar in the studio at the time and I was like, what are you going to do with that 200 euro? I haven't thought about it yet because it doesn't apply to him. It doesn't impact on him and many other people in this country. But yeah. the most vulnerable, it does. Is it a mistake by government not to be more targeted in no, their I approach? Think
6: so I, I think what we need to do is both. We need to have targeted measures for people on particularly low incomes, but we also need to, to to really reach out to our squeezed middle, to people who aren't on the social welfare system, who, who are working, but who are finding the costs of, as Richard has said, the costs of their electricity, the costs of their shopping yeah. bills are all escalating, and that's could what could that have been done with tax credits
1: are. or in a different way, though.
6: Uh, perhaps I suppose, but but what what we were trying to do was was do this in a way that that, that it it happened and it had an impact when it came to electricity bills. It was a specific kind of energy related matter and I suppose just on those low-income families, remember that the fuel allowance has gone from about €600 a year to to double that to €1,200 this year alone on the basis of um, the fuel poverty that that may be out there if we didn't act, if we didn't take these measures because of the rising energy costs. Is that going to be expanded, the fuel allowance? It's been expanded, it's been been doubled in in the past couple of months already um and and i think at this stage things are still on the table the government has has said that that we are committed to making sure that we're easing burdens going forward like we did anticipate inflation ahead of the budget but we didn't anticipate the level of inflation that we're looking at now predictions of eight percent for this year and that's because we couldn't have anticipated a war on european soil
0: people do have to react to that now
1: people will argue that the prices were going up before the war and that this problem was existing around the time of budget and there were Uh, complaints that not enough was being done then. Notwithstanding that, Paul Murphy, um, would you agree that we can't insulate ourselves against all of the other matters that are essentially out of our control and happening outside of Ireland and everyone in Europe and globally is feeling this too? It's it's
2: true that there are massive global factors here affecting inflation. Of course, that's what's driving it. But the government in this country can do things to prevent the real crisis that is facing people now more and more people face with the choice of heating or eating on a daily basis. Um, one immediate thing they, think they can do is to tackle the profiteering that is taking place. There is profiteering going on. There's been no decline in profits for the energy companies. Oh no. All the costs are being passed on and the profits are actually increasing. I mean, We've recently had the announcements of Electric Ireland's profits for last year, other energy company profits for last year. All of them were going up. So we should be taking that back through a measure of price controls the government has the power to introduce price controls for example they can declare an emergency in electricity supply gas oil and say this is Would you is the do that is that, that
1: been charge. considered at all i mean that's the accusation it's very soft regulatory touch in in this country in any case and we're not we're not really to do much about it.
6: Overregulation is going to, to, to lead to, to supply shortages. That's not a, a situation where we want to get to. A lot of these companies have big deficits as well, which also have to be paid. Like The last thing we want are these companies go- going under and not being able to provide this service when we so desperately need it.
1: All right, OK. Uh, just on you know what measures can be done, there's a lot of pressure as well, isn't there, uh, Tom, on, on the carbon tax and whether or not you know that should uh, go up come May. Um, what, what do you make of the argument? I mean, the government is saying, you know, in the grand scheme things it's not a lot of money. Well
7: well, my fear in this is so actually by coincidence we got our energy bills uh, today before I came in and 520 euro went out of our account uh, for gas and electricity 380 for gas 120 for electricity. Now we've got a fellow with um, my my son Owen has a disability and he has issues with uh, circulation so we have to keep the house quite warm for him and it is now, I'm in a very privileged position. We, c- we can absorb that, um, but there are families out there and people on low incomes who are particularly vulnerable to inflation. Now, I remember I'm, I started working in the 1980s. I know it's hard to believe it, looking at me. Uh, but we had massive you know, inflation in the late 80s and early 90s. In 92, the mortgage interest rate on our house was 18%. Okay? Now, at the t- so what did, what did we do the last time? So what the government did the last time was it engaged in what became a notorious phrase social partnership you know trying to mm. incrementally assist people you know to keep pace with the inflationary measures so they're big grand scale not, not once-off payments uh, and rebates on the energy bills uh, and you know i do hope that the government takes the measures that that, that you alluded to and that as we approach budget 2022 2023 that there are broader sweeping measures because this is not those, it's yeah. not this is not going to be short term this, this is going this is going to Last for a period of time,
1: uh, and this and this is what we're hearing. That's what all all the figures appear to show. Um, coming down the line to talk about then um, a big job, a big role, and a salary of 187,000 euro. Richie, um, Dr. Tony Houlihan's new role is is really in the spotlight this week. He was before <coughs> a private health uh, committee today, um, explaining details around it. Do you think, uh, I mean, his explanation of it, uh, the idea that he's not resi- he is relinquishing his role, but he's not resigning um, and still on the taxpayers' money. Um, what do you make of it?
5: Uh, a lot of this doesn't make sense. Um, it's handled very badly. I mean, the media would be the first to criticise the government for not having a pandemic preparedness policy, for not having experts in this area and for not having um, an ongoing dialogue between pharmaceutical companies, health authorities, the World Health Organisation and universities. That's all fine. We, we, think, p- we wish we had that four years ago. Uh, that, that would have been the time to do it. They're late doing it now and they're doing it. OK, that's fine. So that should have been announced. And then the university should have been asked, do you think it should be based in your universities? And there should have been a competitive process for the universities to decide where this unit should be held. And then we say should do what everyone else does in the private sector, and that's interview people for this role, and set a salary based on trying to attract the most talented person. Now, Tony Holhan is very talented. We've seen that, we've seen the work he's done. No one is questioning that. But even the language being used, a secondment, a secondment is a temporary transition. From one position to another, and you go back. He has said he has no intention of going back. So this is just this is like treating the public like fools. It's it's a lack of transparency, it's a badly handled situation. The answers to basic questions had to be dragged, kicking and screaming from people, and now we find out that people who needed to know various levels
1: of this going on didn't know. Emar are we being treated by like fools?
6: Well, there's definitely something wrong with the process, that's for sure, (laughs) and the Department of Health have an awful lot of answers still to give. There's still so many questions out there about this. It seems to have been totally mishandled. Nobody is doubting Dr Tony Houlihan and the phenomenal contribution he made to to Ireland when we absolutely needed it, but the process seems totally wrong here.
2: But the man who's responsible for the process was given an 81,000 euros increase okay. in his salary because the guy was so wise and we needed him at the top, Robert Walsh, you know, and then he's responsible for All this right. process yeah. we're whereby gonna, we're paying for just, two CMOs but, and we're but, getting but, but, one. But, but very okay, quickly, we, Claire,
7: when this was have, announced, every academic in the country's we, ears were up. Does he have a PhD? Does he have a okay. significant scholarly output? Has he inter, international that, research, international engagement? I mean, he's a great guy, but does he have those okay. things? Look,
1: we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Emer, Paul and Tom. Richie's staying with me for a look at the other big news stories of the week. That's coming up next. Stay with us we a look now at some of the other big stories of the week richie oakley editor of the business post is still with me and i'm also joined now by broadcaster and journalist fanula moran and fanula to you first on this big report that came out from the un um, on climate and how we're doing in terms of our goals and targets how the globe is looking Um, was another stark reminder that we're heading into a catastrophe and we've an awful lot to do
8: absolutely massive amount to do and we need nothing less than revolutionary leadership to bring us into this so we need all of the don't can't and won't dinosaurs to get out of the way and let us get on with making all the changes that we need now so basically we are at a huge huge turning point to keep ourselves in any way below 1.5 degrees it's looking likely that we're going to dip over that but with huge changes across every sector of society from government to industry right down to individuals we can try and reduce every fraction of warming to really I think it's an atlas of human suffering is what we're looking at ahead Antonio Guterres, that's what he was saying, we're facing into if we don't really take this seriously now. But this is the good stage of the IPCC report. This is the one on mitigation. So it shows us what we can do. And the good news there is that there are massive things that we can do. And a lot of these things that we can change now have gotten massively cheaper. So things like um, all of the different solar powers, those sort of things, they've all gotten about 85% cheaper over the last few years. So if we can roll those out in a massive scale now, we'll be looking at some really positive changes. Um, But yeah... I mean, it's
1: a big challenge, really, for government now. It's funny that the energy crisis, I suppose, and what's happening um, because of because of energy supply, has thrown yeah. this into the spotlight for people. But really, that the warnings have been there for years that we need to switch to renewables. That's the big going to be the That's big c- game changer, isn't it?
5: Yeah, cut coal move to renewables and methane is the other one if we can reduce methane and um, i think the key thing here is it's not just governments i mean there's a massive change required in people's thinking here as well that's going to be seismic and that's like the idea that maybe you won't go on foreign holidays you know all these different changes to, to the lifestyle things And you know any time like that's mentioned here by same.
1: anybody in studio yeah people go mad over going oh look here we go you know but but realistically you're saying that's what we need to look at. Those flights, the aviation, all of that industry, that's really actually causing the, 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 the problems. I mean, you talk
5: about tackling climate change, but I think the, the, the shift that they're talking about is, is huge and it's across every sector and it's massive change. And I think some people look at it and go, oh yeah, we can do all this and it's not going to affect me. I'll still be able to live the exact same way as I do now. And I don't think that's the case and that's the gap you know you can talk about you know governments are delaying we you know they've moved now to move to to get in wind power and uh, renewable energy. But the warning signs were there years ago and we didn't have a system to bring in. And yeah. as a result, and places the, like Scotland, Norway, and the UK are far ahead of Ireland on, on wind power.
1: And the argument we made, well, we won't, we can't get out of our cars until we have proper public transport in place, reaching places that, you know, where people really need it most. Um, there's probably change required all around and a, a speeding up of, of everything that uh, that we, we have to do. And we're seeing actually, um, really bad weather uh, down under in Sydney. Huge floods there, Fanula, and um, very dramatic pictures emerging from there.
8: Yeah, really telling of what we're going to see coming down the line. Sea level rise is going to be a thing that we'll be dealing with here in Ireland as well, and I know this is one of the things we're sort of sleepwalking into. In Ireland particularly, we're still handing out planning permission, on board Planola giving planning permission to places that within the span of a 30-year mortgage are going to be under the annual flood thresholds. Like a lot of Dolly Mount, the properties that are being built there, they're not going to still be standing around by the time those people have paid off those mortgages so there's a real lack of joined up thinking here and it's the office of public works has passed down all of these rules that on board plan all are meant to be following and we're not we can see what these scenes look like here it's absolutely terrifying and obviously there's so many people in ireland who've already experienced the flooding of their home in Ackle even there's been homes reclaimed into the sea over the last few years so it's just things that we really need to get our act together on, start properly looking forward. We mentioned flights there. I know we don't want to look at flights. We're going to see a massive crush, I think, in the airports again over the Easter bank holiday weekend. But we need to realise if we get on a plane even once a year, we are in the most mobile group in the world. Only 2 to 4% of global citizens get in a plane once a year. And it's 1% of all of the population of the world are causing all half excuse me, of the carbon emissions of aviation globally, so like we are really, really privileged in that regard, and I don't think we realise it here. So when we're being asked to scale back in our city breaks and even international or internal flights, excuse me, we've seen really progressive stuff in France this week. Mm. They're after cutting um, a load of the internal flights if they can get from A to B in two and a half hours on buses or trains. So like, we don't have that public transport system yet in Ireland, we're gonna need some really we don't, and We're also,
1: we're also an island, I guess, and people when they feel they can get away if they can afford to, and if they can, they will. Um, also though, we're, we're likely to see a lot of pressure at our airports um, over the coming couple of weeks when Easter kicks in and people are trying to get away. And those huge security staff shortages um, that are not likely to be fixed anytime soon, Richie.
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a disaster, a PR disaster for, for for the DAA, I mean, for the airport authority. You had people missing flights, being told to come four hours beforehand, people who did go four hours before got through, finding closed cafes and shops on the other side. In a way, you can understand that Um, Maybe they get caught in the hop here. They weren't, you know, they they, they had to wind things down and now they're struggling to wind things up. But, I mean, you could have predicted a surge in in flights. Um, They seem to have taken a lot of measures by bringing staff in, seconding staff, to use that phrase, from (laughs) temporarily, from one place to another. Um, And that seems to have meant that no-one is missing flights, but they're still asking people to go to the airport uh, very, very... Uh, far ahead of flights and that internationally, you know, you, you tend to, like you shouldn't, but you tend to judge countries on how well their airports yeah. operate when you're travelling through, um, certainly I used to travel a lot when I used to do motoring journalism and you'd know which airports you didn't want to go near Dublin Airport was always quite effective, it was always really good, um, but the standards have slipped there just recently and they just need to
1: address that and make sure it doesn't happen again uh, Let's move to um, a big case that was, um, you know, that ruled on at European level um, This week, and that's uh, convicted murderer Graeme Dwyer, who won a significant legal battle in Europe on this ruling around data retention. Of course, he's convicted for the murder of Elaine O'Hara in 2012, that conviction in in 2015. He's now likely, uh, he is going to appeal it. Um, And really, the the, the push is on the state and why we did nothing... Um, up until now, around data retention and the problems that are around, uh, that existed around that. I think the case has shown that the state has struggled in this area, and that's been well
5: documented. And they've also um, tried to interpret them in a way that might involve them doing less work or having to solve the problems or address these these issues. In terms of the case itself, his appeal, um, but his appeal will go we'll go ahead. But the the. The outcome of that that's up to the courts but then separate to that it already seems like the guardie uh, um, detectives have kind of changed the way they do things that they feel that they're able to going to be able to work around the system mm. um that they still should be able to get the data they need to do investigations which
1: is good to hear um to move on to a lighter story fanula and uh, this giant uh, a dinosaur fossil um has emerged we've details around that um Tell us a little bit more about it and the significance of this huge find.
8: It's incredible because it's meant to be from the day that the asteroid hit Earth. This whole thing has happened and if ever there was a sign from the past to tell us to pay attention to the IPCC reports coming out at the moment, this is it. Um, but it's absolutely magic. It a Thessalosaurus, I hope I'm not getting that wrong, And um, but they found what they've described as the perfect dinosaur drumstick of a leg. It's got skin and everything on there. It's been filmed for a David Attenborough show for the BBC as well. So really really excited to see all of this unfolding in front of us and um, but it's just magic what they can do with the science.
1: Yeah it's incredible I, and I was just thinking um, it, it's a funny one as well that you know we're so fascinated as it, like I see it in my own kids and dinosaurs and all of that and when we grow up we don't talk about them as much but it is fascinating then to, to get this find and a look back to um, a past uh, millions of years ago uh, a big uh, comeback as well in the sporting world, Tiger Woods he's doing really well, I think he's three shots off the lead, uh, he had that you know, car crash last year, and the thoughts of him even recovering from that, people didn't think that he, he would without serious uh, damage to his leg. But he, he's doing really well, isn't he, Richard?
5: I think at one point they were talking about him possibly losing uh, a leg. He had to get major surgery. Um, you know, he's had loads of troubles, I suppose, in his in his private life that have been well documented, that we all are aware of. But I think once he goes out and plays golf, uh, he's just box office. I mean, even people who aren't into golf are into watching. Uh, Tiger Woods. There's something about him. There's that competitive streak you see in him, and uh, you know he mightn't. He has to. His legs have to hold up here. He said the hardest thing at the moment is walking. The playing golf is easy. Just walking around. So he's a long way to go. So it'll be interesting. We have plenty of Irish challengers there as well.
1: Yeah, um, and as you say, it's the comeback, really. I mean, he's had his. Uh... Difficulties is a polite way of putting it in his private life. Um, but, you know, these sporting characters, I suppose, um, people get a, a lot of entertainment so. and, and like to see them then, you know, doing well and coming back into, into the parade. He,
5: he was a fantastic story uh, because when he, when he got into golf, um, you know, there, w- there wasn't many people from his, you know, there wasn't many black players at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, he was huge. Uh, and then the style in which he, he won, all, all the tournaments that he won, like, you know, he didn't just beat people, he destroyed them. Um, and then he had his difficulties and then he came back and then he won majors again. Uh, and now, now he's here again. You know, he's, I think he's been retired three times at this point. <laughs> now right. he's back again. Never say
1: never. That is it from us. Thanks to Richie and to Fanula. Uh, our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.
0: Hold up. What was that?